From coast to coast, women grow up with their bodies being watched and, almost without fail, learning to watch their own bodies. This self-surveillance begins young and for many women feels impossible to stop. It permeates our relationships and decisions, negatively impacts our physical well-being, mental health, and overall quality of life. The Body Myth Podcast explores how we got here, why our size and shape have nothing to do with happiness, and what we can do to find body peace. I'm Ronit Plank, and I'm your host for the Body Myth Podcast. Let's get off of this weight and body image roller coaster together. Welcome to episode three of The Body Myth. Over the course of this limited series, I've been sharing answers from women to my body survey. It's called Your Body and the World, and I'm gathering information from women about their earliest experiences of body dissatisfaction and where they are with that now in an effort to hopefully heal some of these older patterns of thinking and help us all feel a little less alone and also to recognize that being a woman and having a body in this culture is complicated. So today I would like to share the answers, some selected answers to this question, which is number three on the survey. And if you want to look at the survey or fill it out yourself, it's on my Instagram at a link in my bio, and you can find that at Ronit Plank. There is also a place to share a longer body image anecdote if you'd like me to read that on the air. Okay, here's the question. How many times a day do you think about your body in a critical way? Here we go. 10 to 20. Every time I look in the mirror or at a photo. A lot. It's never not there in the back of my mind, especially as I age. It's nonstop. Not any longer. I try to stay positive and I love myself where I am. Two to three. More than I could count. Every time I walk by a mirror, but I am always conscious, saying once an hour wouldn't be out of the question. 25. At least once. 20 to 30. Now, rarely. Hard to say, it's pretty frequent these days. Once. Too many. I try not to do this at all but I probably have to shut down negative self-talk about my body once or twice a day. 10 times or more, at least 20. Currently, almost none. I have done the work. I have also gotten my body to a place where I am satisfied with it. I don't know. My thoughts are more health-related than appearance-focused at this time. Two to three, 10 times or more, all day, every day, but I'm trying to reframe those thoughts. 10, 10, maybe three or four times per day. Every time I look at it, 10, 
I'm in my 40s now, so I'm actually pretty happy with my body, but I still think about it at least five to 10 times a day. Thank you so much for those answers. I'm so grateful that there has been such a response to this survey and that I'm able to understand a little bit better what other women are experiencing. And part of the reason I did the survey was to see if I was alone or how pervasive this was. And I'm not surprised by these answers. In fact, I'm surprised by the answers where women say they don't really think about their bodies. And I'm amazed and so excited to hear that that is a possibility because for me, that's not yet a reality. Thank you for your answers and for your honesty and for helping to share these stories, which I think is so important for us to feel less alone and to feel like we can learn from one another's experience and maybe start to change our thinking a little bit. I think it also can help us increase our empathy and compassion for one another and for ourselves as we try to make our way out of these thought patterns and really old ways of thinking about ourselves. And now it's my pleasure to introduce episode three's guest. Today, my guest is Michelle Yang. She's an advocate whose writings on the intersection of Asian American identity, feminism, and mental health have been featured in NBC News, CNN, InStyle, and more. Born ethnic Chinese in South Korea, Michelle is a proud immigrant takeout kid who grew up working in her family's Chinese takeout restaurant. Her memoir, Phoenix Girl, How a Fat Asian with Bipolar Found Love is Forthcoming. Welcome, Michelle. Thank you, Ronit. So good to be on. Thanks for having me here. Oh, I'm so glad that you're my guest. We've been communicating on Instagram for a while now, ever since the pandemic, I feel like. And I was just so surprised that we hadn't talked in in real time until we started recording. So it's just a pleasure to have you. Thank you. I know. We feel like old friends already. I know. So so I'm so happy you decided to be my guest. I'm and I when I really wanted you to come on the body myth and I guess the first question which you know uh, I ask is how old you were when you first thought about your size uh or began judging your body. Yeah, I think really early. It was probably around age 7 or earlier. So pre-immigration, I immigrated when I was 9. So growing up, um I was nicknamed Xiaopang, which is like a term of endearment, like gordita, you know, that they do in Spanish. But of course, um, it still can be di- damaging. And it's funny, too, because when I look back on my photos from childhood, I wasn't even chubby, <laughs> you know, oh right? Like, and I know, you know, you've shared similar stories. Yeah. But like, yeah, I mean, <laughs> and I remember um, my first grade teacher saying, making comment to my parents or somebody that I had perfect legs which is such a weird thing to say about a child, right? I was, you know, yes. I started school early, so I was like five. And I, so I can't even imagine making that sort of very physical assessment yeah. about a child, right? But you heard it. You're saying that you noticed it too? Like you heard yeah, it Yeah, I'm like, what does it? that mean? I never thought about my legs that way, right? Because when you're <laughs> a kid, you're like, you're, your legs are strong. They help me jump, you know? Like I can swing yeah. with my legs, you know? Like you don't think about like, oh, my legs are you know, shapely or something, you know? Like. Yeah. Well, because when, when someone does that, you just, in saying that, and I think I've been getting closer and closer to this in this, during this podcast, is that when we comment about a body part, we're basically separating the person from the body, which then makes us look at our body in this objectifying way. Yeah, absolutely. And it was, you know, around the same age that I remember when my dad first started, like, taking food away from me at mealtimes, saying that I was too fat. 
you know, and it was like, of course, very, uh, it was traumatic, right? Because it's like mm. the family sitting down and then, and then suddenly like you can't eat because you're too fat, you know, and, and, uh, wow. and then there's tears and, you know, it's like, it was yeah. never, there's a lot of, then it, it gets built into food, right? That, and yeah, so it's all around that time. So I, this is what I'm wondering. When your father would say this at mealtimes, did you have a sibling present at that point? Yes, my little brother. Mm-hmm. And was your mom there as well? Yes. Do you recall when you when this would happen at the dinner table, what the reaction was on the part of your mom or your brother? I mean, they were just quiet. My dad was pretty dominant, you know, mm-hmm. and so, um, yeah, they were quiet and sad. And my brother had his own food issues because he refuses to eat vegetables. And he's now a grown man in his late 30s who can't eat any vegetables because oh. there was um, the same amount of pain, you know, because mm-hmm. they try to force feed him vegetables and mm-hmm. my, my dad um, and uh, and he would like throw up at the table. So mealtimes, there was often stress, you know? Wow, yeah. It really sounds like that. And yeah. so your earliest, your earliest memory of mealtimes being stressful, how old were you? Uh, I mean, yeah, I mean, it's probably, it's like how early are my memories, right? Like, yeah. you know, my memory, I, my earliest memory is three, but, um, mm-hmm. but I try to think about when did this actually happen and where I was. And yeah, I'm like, like, yeah, between three and seven. It just like was the always earliest. there. So yeah. even it sounds like even before. Do I have this right that even before the comments started about your size and your shape, that meal times were sort of fraught. Yeah, I would say so. I think. I mean, it took a little while. I think for my father to recognize that oh, other people are seeing me as too fat. That he, you know, he sees me as too fat, and that other people are seeing me as too fat, and. You know, being an Asian, an Asian person, mm-hmm. even in Asia, right? It's I think there's a different, you know, the Western gaze when you come to after I immigrated, but you know, you're expected as an Asian female to be petite. You know, mm-hmm. like you're supposed to be thin and small. You know, and just yeah, that that's part of um, your worth. That's part of mm-hmm. your appeal. You know, and um, and. I'm a Northern Asian, a Northern Chinese person, you know, and, and we're known to be big and tall and I'm five, <laughs> nine and I've always been bigger, you know, and that's just how, that's the stock I come from. My dad is six, three, you know, oh and, he's, yeah, and he's a huge guy. Like, and, and, uh, and for most people from where we're from, where, where we, where they live in Arizona, like he's probably the biggest Asian they've ever seen, you know, <laughs> like, and, and so, yeah, my brother is six feet tall, you know, and my mom's pretty yeah. tall herself as well. And so, um, so yeah, but my mom was, was and is very thin, you know, she's, mm-hmm. and so she's, she fit the, the prototype of what an Asian, the, what a perfect Asian woman is supposed to look like, but I, yeah. I didn't, I never did. Right. Yeah. <laughs> and so it sounds like you felt that when you were back in, in, were you in South Korea or in China? I'm trying to remember. South Korea. Yeah. South yeah. Korea. And I grew up in a Chinatown in South Korea. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And then you got to the States and then you didn't, you didn't match the expectations you perceived the people around you and the Western gays to have, which we know they do, mm-hmm. what we do as a Western country. Mm-hmm. I mean, there's so much to talk about, Michelle. And I, <laughs> I feel like I can't even get into all the stuff I want to talk to you about, but we're going to do our best because your story is complex and it's rich and it deserves, you know, as much time as we can give it. So 
I, I feel like it's also important to note that your family, it sounds like, owned a restaurant. Yeah. So food is at the center of your lives. Yeah, absolutely. And not only my family after we immigrated, but back in Korea, both my mom's side of the family owned a restaurant for generations. Mm. And my dad's side of the family, my my grandfather was more of an entrepreneur, but one of like he he owned a noodle factory and mm. and a restaurant. And so food is our livelihood, you know, mm. and you know, it is the way that is so common in many Asian cultures that parents show love is through mm-hmm. food, right? So there's this conflict of they, because I always felt loved by, by my parents because I don't want to, you know, have, it's really hard to tell a nuanced story to represent my family, you know, that it's like, no, I've, I was always loved, so loved, but there was also this unhealthy dynamic that I don't know where it comes from generational trauma that I want to break, right? The cycle mm-hmm. that I want to break so that I have a healthier body image and that my son has a healthier body image. Mm-hmm. Did you ever did you ever find refuge eating and having food that when you weren't with your father or at the table with the family? Like, did you ever find peace eating after this started to come up in your daily, you know, family meals? Did you ever find a refuge in a way to eat that felt good again or did it never feel good to you even alone oh I love food (laughs) Mm -hmm. right and so it's the food is comfort right and yeah especially when you're an immigrant and you're suddenly dropped in a place where nothing is familiar what you can create familiarity and those memories is with food right Mm -hmm. and um and so yeah and working at my parents restaurant like Fried rice and hot and sour soup was my comfort food. You know, there's like, there's mm-hmm. so many um, things that I, that just, it's like, yeah, when the, when the weather is cold, you, you want something hot. Like, you know, it's, yeah, it's the comfort. And then there's also food maps my life in a way that it's like, okay, when I went to college and then I discovered new foods, right. And it, ma- mm-hmm. it maps out, like I had Thai food for the first time, Indian food, Middle Eastern food that like was not. <laughs> I thought it was yeah. just me that like yeah. attached everything to food, but like, did you, so I know for my mom and my mom is going to be a guest on the podcast as well, oh, exciting. which I'm so excited yeah, about. Yeah, that's but awesome. She, she used to hide food, right? So she was shamed by her mother, uh, really badly growing up about her weight and food and put on a diet really early. So my mom became sort of a secret eater. So I'm kind of wondering, were you ever able to, like when you love food and so do I and food is love, which I, I thought I only felt that in my family, but it sounds like it's universal too. Mm-hmm. So food is love. So how did you get to enjoy food when you knew that your dad was around? Or like, how did you, how did you embrace food the way you wanted to when you had this other shadow of your father's judgment? So that's the that's the thing that is really a mind trip is that my father loves food, right? You, he's a chef, you know, he's a huge guy, like he loves food. He would take our family after our restaurant closed to a Hong Kong style restaurant where we could have like a banquet style dinner and oh he God. would cover the table with dishes and he would mm. like encourage us to all eat. He he was a binge eater, like, you know, and, and mm. so then he would encourage us to do that. And because there there really wasn't, because there wasn't community, right? Because there wasn't other ways, like he was lonely. And so, you know, Mm -hmm. um, that was part of our lives. So it never, for me, was it an issue to take pleasure in food? (laughs) Because that was like Mm -hmm. so much a part of our day-to-day life. 
even mm-hmm. it, the only part came when suddenly it was time to look at my body mm. and that was not acceptable where my body was not acceptable and my dad yeah had me on slim fast cabbage soup you know like all oh the diets gosh. you can think of starting really young you know <laughs> oh my gosh and we know where that leads right dieting right. we know where dieting leads but especially when we're young what happens to our bodies and yeah. to our our metabolisms and our whole psychology about that mm-hmm. so so what was what would you say is the most frustrating or painful period of time for you when it came to body image and, and being in the West? Yeah, I think middle school. I think most people probably, you know, I'm just guessing, <laughs> that would say that middle school is really awkward and difficult because, you know, you're going through puberty and I felt like I was the most disproportionate, <laughs> you know, mm-hmm. and uh, my skin mm-hmm. was bad and um, it was, yeah, it felt... I think I felt least attractive when I was in middle Mm. school. And Mm -hmm. yeah, and that was the most difficult time. Mm. So so dieting, your father started you on dieting. And then when you were no longer living in the home with your father, did you continue trying to diet? Or what was your relationship to trying to control your body? Yes, I think I tried to... Well, I got into an abusive relationship, unfortunately. I didn't start Mm -hmm. dating because I... um, you know, I was raised that it's like, no man will want you. No one will mm-hmm. want you if you're fat, you know, and mm-hmm. like, and my dad would say, this is so unfair. But for women, it doesn't matter how good you did in school, because I was a stellar student, um, mm-hmm. or, you know, how good you are at everything else, how hard you're working, you just you have to be beautiful if you're a woman. And mm-hmm. so I just had such low opinion of myself. And so it really, I cut myself out of a lot of like dating opportunities, even after I went to college, you know, mm-hmm. and, uh, and so I didn't start dating until I was 25. And I dated this guy, and he was abusive, <laughs> you know, he, mm-hmm. he teased me in the same way that my father teased me about my weight. Hmm. He also pressured me to lose weight. But you know, it wasn't just him, though, because like, you remember the 90s culture like it's still it's not gone away but diet culture is so strong that like Mm -hmm. yeah I thought like most women do that being thin was the answer to to Mm -hmm. all your all your life's problems that you can have everything you wanted if you could only be thin so yeah (laughs) I did I did Nutrisystem I did everything like oh my gosh if if I could get the money back you know Right. Like we'd all be wealthy. Right. The money, the money and the time. Right. Did you have any advocates in your friend circle or any, did you have anyone in your life, you know, family or otherwise at this time or during this period of time, which I know took up a lot of your life that said you're fine the way you are? You know, it's funny because I had to really dig. I was writing this story. um, And the one example I have is my grandmother in Korea And she didn't even stand up for me. She just didn't say anything. She Mm. never said anything bad about, like, she loved me, you know, and I loved her. She was, you know, I adored her. And Mm. she, you know, very clearly adored me. And one time we were crossing the street and this random old man points to me, you know, and I'm just a little, like, a preteen probably. And she's like, he's like, you're too fat. You need to lose weight. And I 
snarked back, I shot back at him, you know, I said, you know, in Korean, this was in Korean, um, I said, like, you know, what's it to you, you know, basically, and, and then I was really embarrassed, because I was like, I didn't know if my grandmother knew this man, because I was visiting her, and I w- wondering, wondered if she would reprimand me for speaking disrespectfully to an elder, but instead, she just chuckled (laughs) and I was like oh my gosh you know I just melted I loved her so much you know and yeah because no other family member really stood up for me (laughs) and that's really sad right yeah well you know I have to tell you that when you're were you're telling that story and you thought I just I want to tell you it doesn't make a difference I don't think now but I can't see how anyone couldn't love you oh thank you (laughs) thank you you so much like what a what a like brilliant you know effervescent, smart, you know, like funny, self-aware, creative person you are. And it it hurts to think of you suffering like that. Thank you. I appreciate it. But yeah, I know. So all of us, all of us women are amazing and enough as we are and worthy of love. But we unfortunately grow up with so many negative messages that are the opposite, right? (laughs) Yes, yes. How, so how has your relationship with your family or, you know, if if you care to talk about it, your father evolved when it comes to your own body acceptance? Well, I had to really draw the line. (laughs) Mm -hmm. You know, I had to, um, I actually stopped talking to, I mean, it wasn't just this because, you know, there's, mental health and all a a lot of different issues when it comes to my family that you know at at one point I realized that I was being manipulated and this was I had already moved away to Seattle Mm -hmm. you know and Mm -hmm. um and did you move to Seattle single no I was in that bad relationship (laughs) (laughs) but I broke up yeah we broke up soon after and then uh but yeah I moved for grad school it wasn't until Uh, I was preparing to have a family of my own. Like after I was married and I was preparing to start a family of my own, I was like, well, I really want to get my issues together, you know, like worked Mm -hmm. out before I bring a kid into this life, right? Before Mm -hmm. I can be the parent that I want to be to this child. And so even though um, I was diagnosed, you know, with bipolar disorder at age 20 and I have been in treatment and therapy, like, you know, all through that time since I was diagnosed, I didn't do the, like the, I did the most intensive work after I was married, you know, and Mm -hmm. I was like preparing to have a child. And that's when a lot of the stuff came up and I stopped talking to my parents for about a year and a half because I needed to draw these boundaries, you know, and I was Mm -hmm. like, we had to reset our relationship and was like, you know, if you want to have a relationship with me, then these are my terms, you know? Mm -hmm. And and one of those terms was you can't continually comment on my body each time we see each other. It's still Mm -hmm. hard for them. You know, they regress Mm -hmm. because it's not malicious. As harmful as it is, it is hurtful as it it has been for me. It's how they show love, believe it or not. You know, it's how they think that they're being um, observant as parents, you know? But it's interesting. Like, well, I want to dig I want to dig into that a little bit because I, I think I could surmise what you mean. But so you're already married. You have found your life partner. Yeah. You are a mom. So how do you understand them to be protective and loving with these comments? What's the, what's the end goal? Like not finding a man. Right. 
I just think that they're just like uh, want to be like, see, I'm paying attention to mm. to you and your body, so I can mm. I can mm-hmm. see when you lose weight, I can see when you've gained weight, and I'm very attuned to your health, you know. Mm-hmm. And I think that's mm-hmm. what they're trying to do, but I'm saying, stop it. You know? So so <laughs> so did did they receive your information? I mean, did they? Do you think that the hiatus you took from talking with them? kind of shook them up enough to make them change? At first, but that was, you know, that was eight years ago now, over eight years mm-hmm. ago. And so it's like slowly they slip back into old <laughs> Sliding ways. back. Yeah. Well, you wrote you yeah. wrote a piece for She Knows um, titled This Lunar New Year, I'm Breaking the Negative Body Image Cycle for My Kids. And I really enjoyed reading that. And I wanted to read more. And I just can't wait for your memoir to come out. I know I have to wait a little bit. But you you talk in the article and you interview others about how at the at the holiday it's time to really eat and enjoy and basically like celebrate and so you're you're supposed to enjoy and and load yourself up and at the same time there's the inevitable comments about size and it sounds like the other people you interviewed went through this too mm-hmm. so how did you navigate that or what tips do you have or what was your takeaway from that that article Yeah, I mean, I had a great time speaking with an expert on this because I've never, you know, I've never interviewed an expert on it. (laughs) And it's like some of it is just, yeah, I think for all of us who have been hyper aware of our bodies and our body size, I hope are aware of what to do now. But it's, it's easier said than done, right? Like, even though, you know, like, avoid negative body talk, you know, model Mm -hmm. good eating habits, uh, make sure that, you know, understand that food as a reward doesn't work mm-hmm. in the long run. And uh, like these type of things, encourage intuitive eating, uh, mm-hmm. listen to your body is something that is said all the time, you know, with my kid at home. Yeah. But, you know, also recognize that parenting is just so difficult, right? It's not, it's not easy. <laughs> so we're all doing the I've best noticed. we can. Yeah. And I think being just intentional and mindful about the way we parent is already so much more than how my parents raised Mm -hmm. us because they raised us in survival mode. You know, they didn't need to be, but because of intergenerational trauma or, or, or whatever it was, they, I felt like they couldn't, they didn't have the headspace to think about how does this, what kind of consequence will my statement or my action have for my child, you know, they were just going, you know, moving and they, day they to day. They also had yeah. probably. Mm-hmm. Would you say that their immigrant, their immigrant reality was was really a contributor to that as well? That idea of trying to to blend in or match up. Yeah, I think so. Yeah. Mm. Um, yeah. I mean, not not the body part of it. I don't know if that's mm-hmm. what you mean by the question, but I mean, surviving in a mm-hmm. in a country where they don't speak the Eng- language, they still don't speak English, and where nothing is familiar, they're they're removed far far removed from their support system. I mean, it's mm. it's challenging, right? It's absolutely challenging, yes. and they do, left. Do they ever th- find community? Uh, I mean, it's not. They could have, that's the thing. I don't know, like my father could have lived, chosen to live in places where we had bigger support systems, but we ended up in a state where we basically knew no one, you know? And so (laughs) I don't know why he moved us there eventually. But yeah, we were pretty isolated Mm -hmm. for the most part. And that was, that was challenging. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it sounds really challenging. And it is an interesting question. I wonder if you'll one day get the answer to that about why Arizona. (laughs) I think part of it, and I don't know, it's kind of getting off topic. But, (laughs) you know, I think 
I see seeing what you write about, like my father um, has you know narcissistic tendencies from what mm -hmm. I observe, and in the places where we have support systems, and there was always someone older, like an aunt or you know somebody who yeah. who, and he never liked having a boss, right? Having uh -huh. somebody to listen to, so. If we moved to Arizona, where he didn't have anyone to like, he 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 was uh, the answer. Like he, he yeah, was like the, the boss. king of the like, castle, was, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So there was nobody else who would who could put him in his place. And yeah. so, yeah, that's that's where we. That's a go. that's a really yeah. interesting detail. Now I know we only have a few more minutes, but I want to really touch on this. Um, I know you said that you hear a lot of people, both men and women. Uh, go off of mental health meds that they need because of the weight gain side effect. And you've said that you feel this is tragic and telling about our society and how we've conditioned people to react to our bodies negatively. So, so can you, can you talk about this or, or elaborate on, you know, how people refusing medication that can save their lives for the sake of the way their body looks and what you're, what you think about that? Your yes, thoughts about it? absolutely. So I live with bipolar disorder. I was diagnosed when I was 20. I've been on medication ever since. And mm -hmm. um, this medication has been life-saving for me. You know, mm -hmm. it's, um, I think there's a lot of stigma still around these serious, you know, chronic mental health conditions that are very treatable. And uh, yeah, my life is completely different, you know, it, that mm -hmm. I'm able to access treatment. So it's really quite remarkable to me when I run across people all the time because of the mental health advocacy work that I do. I used to run a bipolar support group uh, for NAMI for over three years. And mm -hmm. so often people, the main struggle people have with mental health medications is the weight gain. So I personally gained 30 pounds in the beginning as mm -hmm. well. So that was difficult because I was already fat, right? Well, I was already <laughs> considering myself fat. But, you know, you have to give the medication time too, because I did eventually like it evened out to more, more of my normal weight, you know, mm -hmm. um, get, give the medication time to work. But I think a lot of times people, when they start on new medications, they experience these new side effects and then they're too shocked by it and they're unacceptable to them. And so they, mm. they're like, I'd rather deal with the mental health condition yeah. than, right. than live with these side effects. But mm -hmm. I just, it's just so tragic. Like I both understand and yeah. I find it so tragic, you know, mm -hmm. because yeah, I've met women who are like, I gained 60 pounds on this medication and I can't date anymore. And so mm -hmm. I can't take up this medication. I'd rather deal with, you know, the effects of my bipolar disorder untreated. Than, than the mental than, health issues yeah, of weight then, gain. Then, and, yeah, yeah, then stop me from living my life. But that's what I'm mm -hmm. saying, that ga for a healthy mm -hmm. woman to gain or whatever, for a person to gain 60 pounds or it's it's like if the weight gain shouldn't stop a person from living the way mm -hmm. that they want to, but the, but our society is saying, you know, that yes. they can't, you know? And, uh, yeah, I mean, men and women, I've heard this from, um, another side effect that can happen is, um, is hair loss. And so, mm -hmm. but it's like, and, and, uh, and the, the severity of it can vary because every, every person is different, but like, again, I'm like, I've had doctors say, oh, do you need to switch, do you want me to switch you off medication or different medication because you're experiencing some hair loss? And I'm like, mm -hmm. no, it's just hair. I'll wear a wig <laughs> if I have to. My mental yeah. health is more important. You know, I prioritize my mental health. Mm -hmm. But 
we live in a society that is so hyper focused on appearances, you know, mm -hmm. and that a quality mm -hmm. of life is dependent on some, the way a person looks. And that is tragic. <laughs> it is. And I feel like it makes, it underlines even more, it underscores even more how important it is, the work that you're doing and, you know, sharing your story and being so open about your experience because hopefully, you know, sometimes people take a while to change their mind and their thinking and their behavior. And, 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 and if others are reading your work and hearing you speak about this, who knows, you know, you're probably moving the needle, right? It, it just may be that their course is taking a little bit longer or different. Yeah. And, and, I, and that, to that end, you know, my final two questions for you, the first thing I want to make sure I ask you is where do you think you eventually got your self-worth? Where you know, how have you been able to build this? You know, um, so, you know how people say you hit rock bottom? <laughs> and not that I necessarily believe that, but that abusive mm -hmm. relationship I was in, he was abusive in just about every way possible. And mm -hmm. then when I um, finally learned that he was cheating on me <laughs> on top of mm -hmm. it, and mm -hmm. that was when I was like, that's it. I'd rather be alone, <laughs> right? I'd rather be alone than be with this person who would treat me so badly. And that's when I realized that like, it's up to me to love myself, right? It's mm -hmm. me. It's up to me. It, I don't need to uh, satisfy anyone else's gaze. It's a long process, right? It's not a mm -hmm. suddenly you flip the light switch and and you love yourself because that's a mm -hmm. lot of conditioning, both personal mm -hmm. and societal, that we all have to undo. And uh, and so, yeah, it's been an ongoing process. I've loved reading Lindy West, mm -hmm. Shrill, mm -hmm. and recently read stuff, No One Tells Fat Girls. One of my favorite things, favorite quotes from Lindy West is, you can't advocate for yourself if you don't admit what you are. And mm -hmm. um, for her, that was fat to like, actually, that's why mm -hmm. embracing, the, embracing the term fat. And for me, that only, not only applies to my body, but my mental health as well. Like it's like, because I hid my bipolar disorder for 20 years, you know, and, mm -hmm. and, and so it's like. Do, did your parents know you had it? Oh yeah. My parents knew because they took me to the hospital, <laughs> you know? Mm -hmm. Yeah. And uh, um, they, they tried to not get me help because they were worried about the stigma. They thought the stigma mm -hmm. would prevent me from living a full life. And mm -hmm. so, and they actually, after I got help, tried to talk me out of taking medication because they were mm -hmm. afraid of the side effects and they were afraid that it was addicting. Mm -hmm. um, and thank goodness I had my own health care by then. And I was like, no, there's oh, yeah. no way I'm going to deal with this, the, the mental health effects of my condition when there's a medication to treat it right and oh so, my gosh yeah yeah so there's a lot well especially because you know if, if you think about it it seems so clear you know it, it doesn't when you're in it maybe for a parent but the idea that you would be afraid your child would live with the stigma over your child living or or being able to flourish mm -hmm. you know t there's really no choice right like you yeah. want your child you know the kind of decisions you would make but they don't know that so different i don't mm -hmm. know that that's the thing that's the part of the stigma in our society that we are yeah. not recognizing that mental health conditions are actually life and death right we talk mm -hmm. about suicide with such stigma as well but it's like that's when people die 
of their mental health conditions that mm-hmm. weren't they weren't able to access treatment they weren't access able to access help and instead we blame them as if it's a crime mm-hmm. you know um mm-hmm. but but it is it's because we don't have enough support and help for people to get get the treatment and and support they need mm-hmm. yeah mm-hmm. yeah so Michelle, what would you tell, what would you, if you could talk to young girls and young women coming up, and, and even boys, because I know you're really aware of the fact mm-hmm. that this can affect all all genders, um, what would you say to help those people coming up now and growing to, to feel better about their bodies? Yes, um, that you are enough. You are perfect just the way you are, right? That you don't have to shrink yourself to fit anyone's ideal, you will have a great life in the body that you're in. You don't have to change to be acceptable, worthy, or lovable. You are enough the way that you are. This actually happened. My son is so healthy and, you know, just perfect. And uh, my dad sees him and he goes, you need to be more muscular like your dad. <laughs> and my son is eight, you know, and and he's confused because no one's ever said this to him. And I'm going, no, don't listen to him. I was like, don't listen to your grandfather. You are perfect. You're perfect. Yay. You know? <laughs> yes. yes. Oh, my gosh. Michelle, thank you. So where can people find you? I will put all of your links in the show notes. But where is where, how would you like to shout out for people yeah, to find sure. you? Yeah, sure. I'm on Instagram at Michelle Yang Writer. Uh, I'm also on Facebook at the same same handle. Yeah, Michelle Yang Writer. If you type that in anywhere, you'll probably <laughs> find me. <laughs> well, Michelle, It's just been a pleasure. Thank you so, so much for spending time with me and and for having this conversation. Thank you again for having me on and, and, and covering this important topic with this podcast. Thank you for tuning in to The Body Myth. If you'd like updates, want to complete the Your Body in the World survey, or have a body image anecdote you'd like me to read on air, please visit the link in the show notes or find the link in my Instagram profile at Ronit Plank. That's R-O-N-I-T-P-L-A-N-K. You can also follow me on Twitter, Facebook, and TikTok. And if you liked this episode, please subscribe and share it with your friends. And if you have two more seconds, you can rate and review it on Apple Podcasts so that others can more easily find The Body Myth. Thank you so much for being here.